The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Darkening the door, I got it. I got to describe here what's what's going on here, Critty. This is a little I'm, bit I'm thrown unnerving I'm thrown. here. All right, let's start with Anurag Rana. He walks in the door, freshly shaven. Now the reason this beard is important because he's had a scraggly beard. I'm calling it for a couple three years. I don't know if it was a pandemic thing, but I was petitioning for him to shave it off since the first time I saw it. That's gone. Looks a what? thousand times younger. I would say he looks him ten years younger. I gotta say, I saw him walking towards the radio studio, and I had to do a double take. I didn't even recognize. I that. know. Sorry, which so we got that going for us. Yeah. And then we got Dan Ives. He covers technology stuff for for Wedbush Security. For the record, though, I think I'm pro scruff. Just saying. Are you okay? It's just not. It's not even a choice here. Um, with Anurag, you got to go. And then he's got the haircut. He's like, it's a whole new Anurag. All right. So Dan Ives comes in with a summer outfit that is right on the edge of being summer cool chic. It's like fresh back from Bermuda. What's going on here? Or it's right on that line of being cool and being obscene. I don't know where we are. It's it's like a Picasso painting in a very strange way. Like I can't even. I don't even know what to say. And about you it. brought that look over to Asia because I saw your postings on social media, Dan. When you were over on your marketing trip to Asia, you weren't holding back, were you? No, I mean we we, we brought it from from two one two over to Asia. <laughs> oh, that's where the color's coming from. Okay, this makes sense. Yeah, two one two color it. over to Asia, and I think yeah, yeah, I think it worked well. It could be a, maybe a, a trend. You, if you start seeing some tech investors <laughs> throughout Asia, it's because of yeah, you. It, I mean, it could. It could <laughs> Besides AI and some of the themes, it could yeah. have a... You know, all right, passion. so let me... Here's... All right, let, let me just go to Anurag here. What does NVIDIA do, and why are they seemingly getting all these all this chip demand for AI? Is, there, is this hypish, or is it real? Well, the hype part is, uh, will always be driven by, uh, you know, a little bit of valuation. But I, I think one of the things you have to think about when you run some of the very large workloads, even on the cloud, you need really fast computers and you really need faster chips. And NVIDIA is the, the leader in, in those chips out there and they've really posted good numbers, which basically tells us that the world is investing a lot more in high-powered computers right now because of all the AI frenzy. Before I go to Dan, can I just point out that the reason Anurag is, has haircut and fresh shaven and all yeah. that is because there's an event happening this evening. Oh, there or is? this afternoon. Afternoon slash evening. It is. Anurag, you want to tell them? Yeah, there's a big semiconductor event we are having in uh, the uh, 120 Park about, uh, we'll have Micron, Intel, and uh, Global Foundries there talking about, uh, you know, the the making of the chips in the U.S. Uh, from, uh, we, have, we have an executive from Department of Commerce. Yeah. Perfect C-suite timing. C-suite of some of the, yeah, some, of the, some of the biggest and some of the best. Um, Bloomberg very excited about that. Boom. Yeah, they are on top of it. So Mandeep Singh of Bloomberg Intelligence will be there. Anurag, of course, leading the charge. Um, yeah, good, good lineup. Uh, Dan, talk to us a little bit about this trade here. The idea that uh, kind of AI is, is driving NVIDIA shares. NVIDIA isn't a pure play on AI necessarily. So how quickly does this 30% move in the stock get walked back? 
Look, this is historic. I yeah. mean, in covering tech stocks 22 years, I've never seen anything in my career where you have a guidance raise 60% in a quarter. And I think the difference and why this is, I think the ripple effects here in terms of this gold rush that's happened in AI, it validates it. The monetization is real because ultimately, as Anarok talks about, they're the ones that see it first. I believe, in my view, this is just the start. I think it's a revolution that's playing out. And in, in my view, Microsoft, Google, across the board, it's just the start of what I view as probably the biggest transformational theme that I've ever seen covering well, tech Dan, since late you've 90s. been a tech bull for ages. So this is, this is pretty, this makes a lot of sense that you would say that. What, what flips your view? What, what gets in the way of this? It's when I talk, and I can tell you the last three weeks, like whether it's Asia, whether it's U.S., when I talk to CIOs, when I talk to product managers, and now they're looking to spend for every $100 in cloud spend, 35 to $40 incremental for AI. To me, that that's the game changer. Mm. That's why, like, look, those, if you're valuation centric, and we've talked about this, you would have missed a Facebook's Netflix yep. test. So I feel like this is one where we're talking conservatively 800 billion over mm -hmm. the next decade, incremental spend, yeah. and maybe aggressively in the trillions with the amount of names you count on two hands. All right, so Anurag, explain to me, I mean, every company in the S&P 500 in the last quarterly earnings mentioned AI. Yeah. For the average company, average person, what is AI? So it's, you're get, trying to get a lot more insights from what you're doing already and try to make better decisions, either on the revenue side or the cost side. Because you have data. You're, you have it's data. It's another way to analyze, organize, and analyze data. Yeah. So, you know, it's much easier to do on the consumer front because it's, you know, we have all the consumer data, you have the internet, you can feed off that. It's a little bit harder on the enterprise side because the data is extremely disaggregated in multiple systems. So it's a little bit of a longer process means you have to buy the computers, which, we, which we're looking at, or the chips. Then you got to figure out how to put the data in a common data platform where you're going to bring all the data together from, let's say, hundreds of systems. Then you got to analyze it and then you put the algorithm on top of it to get you insight. So it's a little bit more longer term view when it comes to enterprises, but a lot faster when it's, it's a consumer application. Well, explain to me this, like put, put some numbers on it for us. If, if, if we're looking at, what do you say, Dan? It was 800? So, so 800 billion 800 over the billion next decade of over incremental decade. spend that basically six months ago wasn't there. Okay. Wow. 800 billion over the next decade. And Dan, I'm going to come to you next on this, but Explain how the math works here, because if you're looking at NVIDIA, I think that the stat I read or something was like the share price alone or the market cap alone off this rally has risen like one AMD or, or, or something like that. It's most direct competitor. How do you price in 800 million worth of, of market over the next 10 years? So one of the things you have to see is, you know, what kind of applications are going to be created? Who's going to be the big beneficiary? Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about a chip manufacturer. From our point of view, the cloud players are going to be the biggest beneficiary because you have to build this thing on a cloud. You can't really run it in your basement and yeah. come up with applications. These are things that require very fast computation and very large memory needs. So you need very, very large, uh, you know, cloud hyperscale, cloud provider. So that's one big beneficiary. We also think, you know, areas 
where uh, such as you have a lot of consulting companies are going to come out and help out to create these applications. So that's very downstream work, but the, it really starts with the chip and the hardware level, then it trickles down to software, then it trickles down to services. Yeah. Everybody in the ecosystem will get some piece of it. And we've seen every company, ServiceNow just had their analyst day. They spent entire analyst day talking about, you know, how they're going to um, improve their product portfolio through it. Adobe did the same thing, you know, a few weeks ago. So everybody is spending crazy amount of money trying to make their products a lot more smarter for the users to use it. All right, Dan, your turn. What's your price target, by the way, on NVIDIA? Yeah, so, well, I mean, we think NVIDIA right here, I mean, $500, when you start to look at where this could be five to $600, could be fair value based on the incremental opportunity. And then you even streamline to Microsoft, yeah. bull case. I mean, you could have a stock with a four in front of it because now all that incremental spend, it's going to Microsoft, it's going to Alphabet, it's going to potentially Amazon and others. In my view, like to your question, I view it that it, now look, execution is clearly there will be issues. Now there's, there's gonna be losers, there's gonna be AI roadkill as well. Yeah. But you, this, is, this goes back to basically a late 90s type feel in terms of trying try to identify the winners. There'll be losers mm -hmm. from a valuation perspective I think it's sort of the, it's a gold rush because yeah. now it, it really changes the whole paradigm yeah. in terms of what the revenue opportunity. Well, Paul, for our radio audience, it's worth saying he said a four handle on Microsoft shares. Microsoft shares are trading at three twenty one right now, and a five handle on Nvidia trading at about three eighty a share. Here's what I see, having been in this market for more than thirty years, I see the average portfolio manager anywhere in the world saying, "I have to have exposure to AI." calls up his tech analyst, tech analyst comes back with the NVDA. That's what we're seeing here today. I don't, yeah. see, I, I don't see a $750 billion market cap stock up 25% on anything more than just panic buying almost. But, but to your point, I mean, you call it FOMA, but so many investors that sit there in debt ceiling, macro valuation, yep, yep. you miss these moves in the video, in Microsoft and Alphabet. In terms of institutional speaking, you're trying to figure out what font to use on the resume this year. Right. And, and I think that's, that's sort of the issue. You could sit there, well, you could talk valuation until you're blue in the face. Yeah. Yep. That and three bucks gets you a hazelnut coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. All right, so we, when, when you're in Asia talking to clients and they say, I want to get exposure to AI, what do you tell them? So on the China side, clearly there's, there's Baba, Tencent, Baidu, you know, from a China okay. perspective, but more and more, they're looking for US. And I view it as the basket. It's, it's Microsoft, it's Alphabet. I view Palantir's a name that, that's a play here, Salesforce.com. You have the chip players, NVIDIA and AMD, and then you kind of go downstream, Datadog, Snowflake, MongoDB. I mean, you're really now starting to look at baskets, and that's why today it all changes. I mean, I view this as historic. If there was an earnings hall of fame, this would be historic in terms of what yeah. it means for broader tech. Anurag, a, a quick question here on, on, on the infrastructure investment. Dan, weigh in if you have any thoughts. One of the things that overnight, I promise they're connected, but overnight one of the things that was so shocking was kind of the uh, DeSantis going on Twitter uh, thing. Trust me, this connects. Uh, but Twitter essentially crashed. And, and a lot of people said, look, they were preparing for a bigger fallout without having the infrastructure to do it. Could a similar thought be applied to this kind of AI boom, that everyone's ready for AI, but the infrastructure can't catch up? 
See, that's why I'm saying the hyperscale cloud providers are the right place to be because you don't have a bigger computer than Amazon across the world. Yeah. Now, Amazon doesn't have an, you know partnerships with some of these leading AI algorithm companies right now, but I can bet you in the next 12 months, all of that changes. It is just going to happen. So you can't run this thing you know, in somebody's back office. It just doesn't work that way. Now, we will, over time, at any given time, we will see crashes in the cloud infrastructure, just because that's the nature of it. It's a bunch of computers connected together. You know, somebody somewhere is going to do something stupid that will crash this thing. I, I, I'd also say that his, Andy Jassy right now has a number of people in some room mm -hmm. somewhere in Seattle, and they're looking at it like they see Microsoft, yep. they see Alphabet, they got to figure out their AI strategy. Yep. And that right now, I think, is probably the biggest pressing need there. All right, guys. Uh, Anurag, 10 seconds. What's your conference again today? Yeah, semiconductor conference. Uh, you can see it on LiveGo. LiveGo, okay. And uh, two of the best-dressed tech analysts on Wall Street right here. Uh, Anurag Rana from Bloomberg Intelligence. Dan Ives from Wedbush Securities joining us here to help us put in perspective kind of what we're seeing out there on a, as Dan was suggesting, kind of a historic day here for tech when you've got, it seems like the market's just opening its eyes today to what AI could mean across the tech stack, and that's what we're seeing. So we thank those gentlemen for coming in. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get off the NVIDIA uh, trail for just a second. Go a little macro here, and we can do that with one of our all-time faves here, Danielle DiMartino Booth. CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research. Uh, she was also a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, so we always appreciate getting her thoughts and her insight there. Danielle, let's just start with our good friends down in Washington, D.C., trying to figure out a way to, to pay the bills and everything. How does that whole, I guess, uncertainty factor in kind of to your outlook and your work? Well, it factors in pretty largely, uh, given I was around in 2011, and you know, now that we're talking about Fitch possibly downgrading the nation's credit, it's it's kind of getting real. And, you know, for all of the headlines that speak of progress, that's the one thing that doesn't seem to be getting made is progress. So you have to stop and wonder, right? Well, Danielle, talk to us a little bit about the fundamental agreement here, because uh, the 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 formula for, for GDP, let's do Econ 101, a big part of that is government spending. If you were looking at even the flatline offer from the Biden administration, which is just to keep spending the same as it is right now, that's still got to take some sort of toll on economic growth. Why are we worried about that? Well, you asked a really fundamental question, and we should be worried about that because once you dig into the, 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 the guts of the GDP math, we haven't been getting a lot uh, from the, the, the biggest traditional inputs of business investment and consumption. In fact, we've been yep. seeing uh, just the opposite. And if you look at Bank of America proprietary credit card, debit card data, uh, that's trending in the same way as well. 
So um, these are the times when your economy is slowing into recession that you need the offset of government spending the most. Exactly. So we had some a little bit of economic data today. We're going to get some uh, more tomorrow with the PC deflator data, which is obviously real key with the Fed. But just on the jobless front, I mean, I don't know how you want to look at it. I know we had some squirmy numbers coming out of Massachusetts, the kind of stuff I usually expect to see in New Jersey. But um, anyway, jobs claims came in a little bit better than expected. The labor market still looks pretty solid. How do you think about it? So I don't look at the labor market in absolute numbers. Uh, at QI Research, we haven't for some time. What we look at is the number of states that we have with rising claims, and that really does take all the Massachusetts noise out of the math. And we've had at least two-thirds of the states with rising initial and continuing claims here um, for a persistent period of time. And that tells you that while off, it's a, it is off a small base, a low base, historically speaking, as it would be coming out of a pandemic, um, that reemployed people who wanted to be reemployed and left people on the sidelines who were making enough from the government for, for a good long time. Think of how long the, the government was paying households rent and still is in states like California. Um, but, but given the breadth of states, B-R-E-A-D-T-H, that are seeing rising initial and, and, and continuing jobless claims, we are at or, or past recessionary levels. Danielle, is there a, a way here to still get that, that shallow recession, or, or is the hard landing still the growing base case? Well, I think it grows with every day that, that the media tells us there's been quote-unquote prog- progress on the debt ceiling front, and we <laughs> oh, those dang end media. up at the end of the day without that progress. So um, once we can take the air quotes off progress and we actually see a deal done, and even in, in that case, uh, the, the terminal had a story out a few days ago that said that, that Wells Fargo figured that if the debt ceiling was resolved by Labor Day, call it, which seems like a we're not even at Memorial Day. So Labor Day seems a long ways away. But Wells Fargo said that even if the debt ceiling was resolved by Memorial Day, that the Treasury Department would have to sell somewhere around $1.5 trillion in treasuries between then and the end of the first quarter 2024. That's a lot of liquidity to pull out of a system that's already contending with U.S. households pulling money out of banks and putting them into investments that pay 5% or more. Hey, Danielle, when I, when I type in the Fed Go function into the Bloomberg Terminal FED, I, I get a lot of information about the Fed and what's going on there. One of the, the easiest pieces of data is they got another appointment on June 14th, which is not only Flag Day, but it's going to be a big day for the markets. I'm guessing the Fed's going to know something about this whole debt ceiling by June 14th, one would think. How, how do you think the Fed's looking at this news every day? Are they hanging on every word like, like we are, or are they just maybe working under the assumption that things will be okay. So given I used to work at the Fed, yes. I, I kind of know who's who. And let's just say that Christopher Waller is as close to, if you can't get Waller, if you, if you can't get Powell at a microphone, then you can substitute in Christopher Waller. Okay. He's about Powell's closest confidant. And yesterday he said he didn't like the position that the U.S. government had put Fed policymakers in, but that that was not formulating into his calculus. I think that's a lot of the reason that we're seeing the probability of a June 14th rate hike, the highest since it's been. Now we're north of 40 percent there uh, for June 14th. Yesterday, we were talking about, oh, will we get 25 basis points by July? At this point, we're getting really close to a toss up on June. And we've got some critical data between now and that meeting. 
And again, Waller's saying we are data dependent. So as we get into their hot employment report in, who knows? Who knows if they don't go right then on June 14th and raise the flag? Danielle, connect those dots for us, though. How does the debt ceiling affect Fed policy? How much of it is inflationary? Well, it's, it's not inflationary. And, and well, back in 2011, um, the 10-year bond, uh, the, the benchmark 10-year yield uh, came down quite dr- dramatically. It, it, um, it was a massive rally in the bond market, and immediately uh, the, the stock market shaved 17 percentage points. That's not a small move. Um, so uh, in that sense, it makes the Fed's job easier. But it, it is the disruptive effect of the financial markets that plays into how policymakers approach um, Fed policy. And if there's something that's highly disruptive, very difficult. For, and, and again, we forget that it's like the, 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 the stock market does yoga before every Fed meeting and financial conditions ease. Things always seem to be nicer, more complacent. And it, but again, that's just how it always seems to be right at the cusp of, of Fed meetings. If there's a massive disruption in the financial markets because of this debt ceiling standoff, makes it much more difficult for the Fed to go. Danielle, you know, I've got EcoGo on my terminal, but that's basically all I have for economic indicators, and it's pretty high-level mar- high market stuff. I always know you. You always quote these really obscure things that, for you, are really important, and you think that really tell maybe a, a deeper story. What are you looking at now these days, and kind of what's it, what's it telling you? So two things this week in particular, because it's been a pretty quiet economic data docket. Uh, we did see uh, uh, purchase applications for homes dip right back down to kind of that 30-year low. And um, at the same time, I've put what my, my trader buddies on Wall Street have seen. They're like, Danielle, we've got truflation up on our screens. Watch TRU, truflation, since it's like checking a billion prices in real time. And uh, again, it was kind of a, a, a moment. It was a threshold. It was a Rubicon that was crossed in yesterday's trading that it, that it traded south of the 3% mark. So in the real world, I understand the, the beautiful models that come out of agencies and the Census Bureau and the BEA and the BLS and all of those happy acronyms in the statistical agencies. But in the real world, uh, inflation is breaking below 3%, which is pretty close to the Fed's 2% target. So and, and I'm seeing it. My, my, my grocery circular is thicker than it used to be. There's there are more things on sale. And I, I sure as heck don't see any help wanted signs where I am. These are the telltale signs. OK, Danielle DiMartino, Boo, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Thursday before Memorial Day weekend. We appreciate it. Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and chief strategist at QI Research. Uh, and she's a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, so really has a unique view into the Fed, and we always appreciate getting some of her time. And again, one of the many reasons we like talking to Danielle is because she looks at economic data sets that I didn't even know existed, but they do, and she looks at the data, and she's able to put that data into context for us and tell us why it's important and why we should focus on it. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Let's step back a little bit, shift gears and talk geopolitics. Let's head over to Europe. A lot of news coming out of uh, Europe, of course, and where you want to get the latest on the war in Ukraine and some other topics over there. Um, let's go to Maria Tadeo. She's a European correspondent for Bloomberg News. She is based in our uh, Brussels uh, office over there, but she's all over Europe covering the big uh, stories over there. So, Maria, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy uh, afternoon and evening. Let's start with Ukraine here. Um, the counteroffensive, I kind of thought we might have seen it start by now. Uh, what's the feeling in Europe about when this may start, what it may mean, and how we should think about it? Uh, yes, and it's a very good question. And today I happened to speak with uh, one of the senior advisors to President Zelensky on this matter. Now, what the Ukrainians will say, and you hear two sides to the story, they say uh, we're still waiting for more weapons and, and the counteroffensive will be successful, but obviously they do not want to put a date on it. And then uh, on the other hand, you also have other officials also from the Ukrainian government uh, who say when you launch a counteroffensive, this is not going to be like D-Day when it all happens on, on one day and this is a make or break. This will be a series of events that will happen. So it's very difficult and obviously for them too it's not something that they would do to publicize a date or to say it has started uh, already but what i can say especially when you look uh, to european officials is that this counteroffensive will be key there is so much going on for ukraine in terms of the momentum for the war in terms of whether or not they can make significant gains and the west has provided money they have provided uh, weapons obviously it's the ukrainian people that, that suffer the war it's, it's the ukrainian army that fights uh, the war and ultimately also dies in, in battle i mean that's the grim reality of this but there is a sense that a lot is going on with this counteroffensive. it means a lot if it doesn't go well could remove some of the momentum, this idea that Ukraine can win. If they are successful and they're able to claim some of the land back, it could change a lot of things in terms of what the future peace may look like. So let's go from the war in Ukraine, uh, Maria, to the economics of, of Europe broadly. Germany enduring its first recession. Talk us through the numbers here and, and essentially how the biggest economy in Europe is really being interpreted by its peers right now. Well, Germany we always care about uh, for two reasons. Obviously, it's the biggest economy in the euro area, so obviously the clout and the just kind of say they have in talks and negotiations when it comes to anything that gets done uh, in Europe is uh, tremendous. Obviously, this is a country that has the biggest pockets. Uh, it's also a big industrial power for Europe, too, and there has been this idea that we have to rebuild uh, the European industry and that Germany will be key because of the, well, just simply the fact that they know how to make things and they make them very well and also export them uh, very well. When you look at the number today, the recession, it is uh, significant in some ways. Uh, if you look at the political narrative, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, had repeated many times. Remember, he did an interview with our editor-in-chief about two months ago, and he said, we're not going to have this recession. We're going to escape uh, this recession. They were trying to flip uh, the momentum of it. Today, we see the economic reality is different. Uh, having said that, are we shocked, surprised? Well, no, because the PMIs had been painting 
a bad picture for Germany. We knew that manufacturing was already in contraction. We knew that some of the implications of the energy crisis, this was not the winter uh, from hell that we were expecting. This was not the terrible winter that would break uh, Europe, but obviously it has lasting effects on the industry, and now we see them uh, play out. And beyond Germany, to answer your question, a bigger picture, I think it also reflects some of the fears that I hear and see in every panel that I do, in every conference that I've done over the past month, this idea that Europe is losing attractiveness when it comes to the industry. And there was a survey, just very briefly, but I think this is so key, that came out this week from a very influential European think tank that said 52% of CEOs would consider changing investments and operations and moving them to North America. That is oh. terrible news for made in Germany. But beyond that, and here's another stat, and this is terrible, 80% of the CEOs that were surveyed, they said that they believe Yes, Europe is losing competitiveness when it comes to the industry. So 80% of respondents, that number is really, it is worrying. It is, it is. And and, and in Germany, just following up there in Germany, uh, you know, when I think of Germany, I think of some of these great industrial companies, Siemens and, and so on. And I think about them making big, big stuff uh, and and exporting it to China. Um, so they must have a very difficult political and economic, you know, tightrope to walk in terms of the relationships the relationship with China, how, how do they phrase it? How does the German government yes. phrase it? Yes, for sure. And, and it's not just the big uh, companies in Germany that we all know of. And, and obviously, they make things that are very well and very well done and, and that they sell. But it's also the SMEs. Remember, Germany is a country that is built on small to medium companies, too, mm. that then are interconnected with the big ones. But it doesn't stop there because Germany is also a country that buys components and parts to countries like Italy. So a recession in Germany has trickle-down effects on countries like Italy. So overall, this is a very heavily connected uh, economy. When you look at China, look, this is a difficult question for Germany, but also the European Union overall. When you see the G7 statement, and Olaf Scholz obviously participates, representing Germany, they all agreed in the communique that they have to de-risk the economy, not decouple. And they mentioned China in that statement 20 times. I have never wow. seen that in the G7 statement. So that shows the political uh, jitters are obviously playing out. They have been accelerated by the war in Ukraine. But for Germany, this is a very, very difficult uh, question because on the one hand, the relationship with Russia on the energy is, is over. The Nord Stream blew up, but also a major recipient of your exports. You're now having to rethink, is this country a partner? Is there a rival? Is it a challenge? And now what do you do after years in which China was a huge market for Germany and continues to be? Maria, in the absence of, let's say, some sort of transition or diversification away from China, who's the benefactor from Germany's perspective? From Germany's perspective, look, it's, again, it's a, it's a good question because, and it goes back to the initial point uh, that I made on European CEOs being gloomy. Uh, what they feel is like if we lose business uh, with China, if we also have a lot of the regulation that kicks in, especially when it comes to the greening of uh, the economy, there's all these transitions that are going on and we don't have the money and, and the type of subsidies that perhaps a transformation like this uh, would entail, then one of the big beneficiaries is obviously the United States. And we know that for the Europeans, there have been a lot of concerns now for the Inflation Reduction Act, what they mean when obviously they see a survey where one in two CEOs essentially 
say, I would consider relocating to North America, that is problematic. But at the same time, you find yourself in a situation where, again, politically and diplomatically, the United States and the European Union are very close now because of the war in Ukraine. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your perspective about all things Europe. Uh, Lots to think about there. Maria Tadeo. European correspondent for Bloomberg News. She does fantastic reporting from all of the hotspots around Europe, including Ukraine. So, again, some some great color there from Maria Tadeo on the ground in Europe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Next guest, this is kind of stuff right in my wheelhouse. We're talking leverage finance, you know, putting loan. I had to first, when I was at Chase Manhattan Bank, we lent to a company called, God, was I can't remember, it became Nextstar, it became, oh, it's Fleet Call. I was asking for a $250 million loan on no assets, wow, no cash flow. We were lending against air, and we got the loan. Um, our committee, we finally, it took us like three weeks of meetings, but we finally convinced her. And it turned out to be Fleet Call, and we made a gajillion dollars on the warrants. Ted Swimmer, he knows what I'm talking about. He's head of capital markets at Citizens Financial. Ted, you guys at Citizens Financial, kind of mid-market, upper mid-market, financing deals, getting deals done. Tell us about that part of the market today, because here, Simone and I, we just sit around, we talk about the debt ceiling and the Fed and stuff like that. You're on the ground helping companies raise capital to grow and to buy stuff and build stuff. What are you seeing? You know, it feels a lot better out there than it has in in about a year, year and a half. You know, a year ago, we saw M&A kind of cease. A lot of people concerned about how high rates were going to go people uncomfortable with trying to raise debt in the public markets and the private markets. And we saw a real pause in M&A and in, um, and in debt financing. If you've just looked the last two months, um, a fair amount of transactions have started to be announced, underwritten by banks, underwritten by debt direct lenders. We're starting to see the market unfreeze a little bit. And we're starting to see, especially for really good companies, a very, very active M&A market. So things feel a heck of a lot better than they did. That kind of sounds surprising to me because at the same time, you know, the Fed's talking about tightening lending conditions. You know, that's what we're hearing from money managers as well. And you're in this upper middle market space. Shouldn't this regional banking stress kind of take away from some of these things, have the opposite effect perhaps? Well, there's there's a lot of different parts in the lending market. There's a leveraged finance market, which is funded a lot by CLOs and things of that nature and by direct lenders and you know as banks sell a fair amount of these exposures off the markets to do those have have unfrozen you've seen the secondary levels trade up both on the bank and the bond side which are giving banks a lot more comfort in underwriting the transactions which they didn't have um this time last year i mean you saw how the the bank the bank index kind of went down about 10 points bond index trading the low 80s that's all reversed and we're still not back to where we were 2021, but it feels a heck of a lot better than it did um, recently. But 
Just go ahead. Now, I just want to ask you about one of the big topics that I like here, and it seems like a real growth business on Wall Street over the last several years has been private credit, not yeah. private equity, private credit. Sure. And coming out of the great financial crisis, a lot of the banks really were curtailed in their ability to take to, the type of lending they could do, the risk they had to take on, and that kind of created this private credit business. And it seems like they're raising money hand over fist. How do you deal with, how do you view private credit in the marketplace as a competitor to you guys? It's a competitor, and it's also um, it's also somebody we work with. So, okay. as we underwrite transactions, uh, sometimes we'll move it over to the CLO market, more of a public not public but uh, more diversified market. And sometimes we'll work directly with private credit to help place deals. If you look at a lot of the deals that are coming out, some of the larger deals, you'll see a combination of bank underwriting and and private credit both underwriting the transaction together now. So you're starting to see these markets, I think, start to merge a little bit more. And it's not just private credit or bank. You're seeing a combination of both. Your Blackstone did a deal last year where you saw them both use the bank market and the private credit market to get something done. Uh, so you're seeing a combination of those markets come together. Well, there we talked about this enthusiasm for private credit. I mean, yeah. has it, I feel like that's the only thing we read about on top on mm -hmm. the Bloomberg Terminal. Has this gotten over its skis? Has too much money been raised, or how does this how does this money enter the economy over the next couple of years? Well, it enters the economy with an increase in M and A flow. I mean, a lot of the deals that are being uh, that are that are being uh, a lot of the, the financing is going into these new M and A transactions, and I think you've seen a period of time over the last year where there hasn't been a lot of M and A, and you've seen the private credit funds build up capacity. So there's a lot of unused capacity, which I think will help fund as people get more and more comfortable with valuations and whatever this new rate environment looks like. You'll see an avenue for both private credit and for CLO credit uh, put to work in order to finance these transactions. So you guys at Citizens hosted a, a conference in Atlanta recently, and presumably that's where you bring companies together, sponsors together, and you guys try to generate some conversations and, and hopefully some, some trades down the line. What was kind of the, the conversation uh, when you brought these folks together? Sounds like you were there, Paul. You described, you, <laughs> I, you described been, it perfectly. I've been to many of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was a very optimistic group. I, we've, we've, had, we've hosted this conference in the last four or five years, um, and we saw more optimism. Uh, we, we had a record amount of attendance, a record amount of sponsors, financial e private equity firms, and a record amount of companies looking to try to transact now. Uh, I think what we're, what we're hearing is for really solid companies, there's a very, very active market and an aggressive market to get those transactions done. For a little bit more storied credits, uh, we're still seeing it'll be a little slow, but our pipelines right now are at a record amount. And it's just a question of can we get a buyer and a seller together to well, do about, a transaction? How about you? You bring it. You, you host this conference. You get you get a, some conversations going. Boom! You think you got a deal. You get them together. You go to your credit committee or you go to whomever. Can you get deals done? Leverage deals or with a little hair on them? When, what, what's it like going to try to get some some of these deals done right now? It, it's. Not easy. Right. I mean, obviously, banks are thinking about a lot of different things right now as they're putting capital to work. But again, a lot of these deals are distributed to markets uh, where we can, which is very active and very liquid right now. I mean, to Simone's point earlier, you've seen a ton of private credit raised. There's a lot of there's a lot of desire to put money to work. You've seen very little loan issuance over the last year, so there's a really pent up demand on the CLO side. 
So although banks are not necessarily desirous to hold big capital commitments right now, there are other avenues of, of investors that are, and our ability to put the buyer and the seller together, take some distribution risk has never, I wouldn't say never been as good, but it is certainly improving over the last 20, 12 months. When you look down to, I guess, lower middle kind of credits, is that somewhere you see a little bit more anxiety? Yes, absolutely. The lower, and just to, to clarify what we're talking about, I would say upper middle market is EBITDA sizes of $50 million or greater. So enterprise value somewhere between 400 and a billion dollars type things. Mm -hmm. When you start looking at lower, that's become a market that has been more dominated by direct lenders as they've been able to do things that are, would, banks would have a tough time during the regular, do a regulatory environment to get done, but the um, but the direct lenders can certainly do as they're not obviously regulated by the bank. So we're seeing a lot of appetite from that for those type transactions getting done with direct lenders. Because because it was really interesting. I, the CEO of Citizens Financial was on Bloomberg Markets yesterday, and he was talking about how. Um, restricting, reining in credit by yep. 2 to 3% was going to essentially help the Fed do its job. But it does seem to really disadvantage smaller businesses, smaller it, companies. It's a great point. I think a lot of that was done prior, right after, as Paul mentioned, the, the Great Recession, when the regulatory environment became harder. We really saw direct lenders pick up some of the slack. But I think as you get to more corporate-driven transactions that don't necessarily have, have traditionally relied on the bank, I think that's where you're going to see some issues if, if things get tighter from a lending perspective because banks are used to holding very large dollar amounts of those, and obviously that's going to become more expensive as capital becomes more precious. What are some of the sectors you guys like right here? Uh, some of the sectors you like investing in and, and, and doing so, business with right now. So we're doing a fair amount with uh, with data centers. Digital infrastructure is a great space for us right now. We're seeing we we just purchased an M and A firm called DH Capital that specializes in that, and we've had a great run in that business, um, and we see that as a real growth engine over the next couple of years. Uh, a lot of um, uh, business technology. Uh, business outsourcing, things of that nature. We've been showing a commercial, com industrial, com industrial flow stuff. We're doing yep. a fair amount in there. So um, those areas have really grown and seem to be somewhat, especially the digital infrastructure, yep. somewhat immune to concern around the overall economy. That seems to be a never ending need for capital in that yep. business. So. All right, Ted, thanks so much uh, for coming in. Appreciate it as always. Ted Swimmer, he's head of capital markets at Citizens Financial joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. None of this phony and in garbage coming in live to the Bloomberg term, uh, Studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Marie Driscoll. She's a luxury retail analyst for CoreSite Research, got lots of experience in the retail space. And Marie, let's start with, with the luxury space here. I'm just looking at LVMH. That's kind of one of the names I kind of know. Um, and it's big. It's 400 billion market cap. I'm looking at the French shares that trade in, on, in France, up 20% year to date, up 50% on a trailing 12-month basis. Talk to, talk to us about retail uh, space. What are you seeing out there these days? So... If we're talking about luxury and LVMH, um, you know, there's still pockets of money. The aspirational shopper 
is definitely um, more purposeful and and making their purchases, you know, with thought. And we heard that from the likes of Walmart um, on up. But for for a company like LVMH that has 75 brands in the luxury space um, and brands that are powerfully supported throughout various economic cycles, these brands hold allure, and um, they never—they really rarely mark down their their key brands like a Christian Dior or the Louis Vuitton. They're they're not marked down, um, and and because of that, many consumers look at them as like stored value. Like you know that when you buy it, you're not making a mistake. It won't be marked down next week. Luxury shoppers are still shopping. People are being more purposeful, and you do see a bifurcated market. The people that have are spending, um, and and they're not spending flagrantly, but they're still buying luxury products. Luxury has also benefited from price increases for the last few years. China is coming back, so we expect to see um, a slowdown in, in U.S. consumption of luxury as the U.S. consumer deals with in the impact of inflation and also reverts back to a pre-COVID um, lifestyle of increased experiences. Experiences are where the consumer is um, encountering severe inflation, you know, 20 to 40 percent increases in the price of going out to eat or staying in a hotel, airfare. And yet consumers want that. There's pent up demand for that. Um, and so as consumers spend on those experiences in America, they're less likely to be spending on another um, expensive handbag, um, though the handbag is the handbag that remains of choice and they'll spend on it when they when they decide to do so. But this year, um, luxury will see the benefits of the Chinese returning to the market with the opening of China again. And mm. other, like the UAE will be strong. And also you have um, Gen Z supporting, you know, a younger, a younger luxury shopper that is supporting luxury. Right. Well, you know, we have been hearing from CEOs across the consumer space about this softening of... Mm-hmm. U.S. demand. Take me through the details of that. Which demographics are feeling the pinch most and who uh, are the uh, recipients or uh, of this potential cynicism uh, and, you know, inflation tightening of belts from consumers? Yeah. yeah. So you see, like, people are tightening their belts. Like, if you just listen to the Walmart call, um, people are purposeful. They're looking for bargains. Walmart, during COVID, Walmart um, attracted many consumers earning 100000 a year or more. And, and, of course, they're trying to retain them as customers. This, this year, you know, higher-end consumers, everybody feels inflation. Um, and, you know, except for the 1%. Most people feel inflation. They feel it in their grocery bills. They feel it in going out to eat um, and, and in their travel and, and, and various services and experiences. Um, and so they are, while there's demand for selected items, like if you recently Kohl's, which is very middle America, reported, and where did they see strength? They saw incredible strength in beauty. So people are still saying, I'm going to buy, um, I'm going to have this cheap 
taste of luxury and it's a fragrance or a lipstick. And guess what? You can use a lipstick every day. So it's got efficacy, which is similar to using a luxury handbag. You know, so you can, there's room for that. For the last few years, we've spent a lot on casual attire. Um, Kohl's saw a big um, increase in both men's and women's more um, occasion-based attire or or dressy attire. Right. You know, with Kohl's, though, I mean, you saw shares pop uh, up Mm -hmm. 7.5%. But I think, you know, during the day, that was quite a bit higher. Um, Is it enough for these companies to just sort of, like, beat the estimates that their executives put out? Um, is, Is that what we're seeing in the market reaction? Or are we seeing some fundamental sense from investors that the consumer is a little bit better off uh, than they had anticipated going into earnings season? So, you know, you know, reading enough um, and listening to enough calls during the, the last week or two, one, a few of the big takeaways are that um, while sales may not be meeting objectives and the consumer is more purposeful and there's winners and there's losers here, um, I'm going to quote what um, the Dick Haynes Urban Outfitter said. The hostile operating environment of the last few years has finally abated. Freight rates have normalized. Supply chain speed and reliability have returned. Our initial um, merchandise markup improvement initiatives have begun to bear fruit, and total inventories are down. And we're once again growing inventories at a slower rate than sales. That kind of um, that that the way he characterized his business is what I'm seeing across many businesses. While the top line isn't there, the erratic um, business operating environment we dealt with in the last three years with peaks of demand, not enough not enough supply, then the rush of supply and too much um, and not enough demand is abating. And we're entering a time when now the cost of getting your products to the store are less. You're seeing a return to stores. Um, digital is slowing down. People are in the stores. So, so the fundamental they, post-pandemic improvements, you know, that's what we're seeing rather than, you know, I think so. consumer. Right. And, and, and if we can get through a quarter or two of, you know, like the consumer, like these are the, the summer is the week quarter. The summer is when the U.S. consumer is out traveling. If we can get through that, um, the second half of the year should be a better time. And I think investors should be looking at that. Hey, Marie, uh, China reopening. As, as I walk through Midtown and down Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue, I see tons of European shoppers. I don't see Chinese. When are they coming back? Yeah. So, you know, Corsite is very close to the Chinese consumer. We have offices there. We have analysts on the ground, and we've been following them for probably eight years and more. Um, And what we're, you know, it's going to take six to 12 months for them to come back. They just opened up in February, basically, and it takes a while to get your travel plans in order. Um, We don't really see it coming end of this year, next year. Um, but the Europeans are here, and the Chinese are, tra- are starting to travel domestically within, within um, the Asia region. And, and so many American brands will benefit from that. Right, and, Marie. you know, the European brands. Yep, absolutely. 
Absolutely. We'll, they're welcome on Fifth Avenue, they're welcome on Madison Avenue. I'm sure I speak for all the retailers there. Because uh, when you talk luxury retail, a big, big component, a big driver uh, is the Chinese uh, Chinese consumer. Uh, Marie Driscoll, luxury retail analyst at Coresight Research, joining us here to talk to us all things retail. Uh, despite some of the tough headwinds out there in terms of inflation and economic uncertainty, there are certain pockets of some retail strength, and we're seeing other areas where some consumers are trading down a little bit. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I think one of my favorite stories coming out of Bloomberg News this week was one by John Gittleson. Uh, about downtown LA's office distress so is the pain coming for cities a this is an incredibly well sourced and reported story and it's got just killer graphics by Kyle Kim and it really brings home some of the problems we're going to see in some of these big US cities that you wouldn't necessarily think but like LA go figure so anyway yeah John get us on he's a reporter real estate reporter for Bloomberg News John, thanks so much for joining us here. I said to our producer, Eric, we got to get John on here because this is a great story here. Talk to us about L.A. and some of the primo buildings, iconic buildings in L.A. They're in a lot of trouble, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. I mean, downtown L.A. has not really been a magnet for office workers for quite a while, but the pandemic really gave it this punch to the stomach. Uh, and so... The biggest landlord, Brookfield, has defaulted on three buildings, and it's got more troubled debt out there. So $1.1 billion worth of loans it's not been paying, and uh, more trouble on the way trying to refinance those buildings. Yeah, talk to me about what happens exactly to those buildings. I'm sure some of it we don't know. Um, so Brookfield, in some cases, has said, We'll step away from this building completely, I, b I believe, uh, based on the story. Um, but it's not necessarily true for, for all of them. Take me through the process. That's right. Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of options. Basically, though, these buildings are underwater. So uh, that means their debt is bigger than the value of the buildings themselves. So what can happen is the lender can say, OK, we'll take a haircut and you can keep running the building. You can keep managing it or the owner can walk away and somebody else could take over. The building could sell for a loss to a new owner. Um, theoretically, down the road, maybe some of these buildings could be converted to another use, like an apartment building. But a lot of these are kind of like 1980s, 1990s office towers that would hey, be very hey, hard hey. to convert the, to apartments. The 80s were very good for me, John. <laughs> but be careful here. Well, they weren't necessarily good buildings in today's world. <laughs> That's right. You're you're in your prime, so. <laughs> yep. So it's interesting, John. Like I, I I noticed, you know, when my experience with downtown LA is I would go see Capital Research Group and the Trust Company of the West, and that was kind of it. Every all the other asset managers and financial firms were kind of scattered throughout the greater LA area. Who is in downtown before? I mean, even well, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of law firms, there's a lot of accounting firms. One of the two of the towers, actually, that Brookfield owns at the top of the building, one says EY Plaza, which is Ernst & Young. And the other one is Deloitte, another yeah. accounting firm. Um, a lot of law firms, those businesses are classic, like we don't need all this office space mm -hmm. because our workers 
maybe work in somebody else's office or they can work remotely. So they don't they don't necessarily need to go downtown. Then there's a lot of government workers downtown. About a third of the uh, employment base downtown is like city, county, state, federal, court type of government workers, many of whom continue to work remotely. You mentioned potentially converting these buildings into, um, you know, perhaps apartments or something like that. Kyle Bass back, I believe last month, was talking about how, you know, maybe these buildings are just going to have to come down wholesale because they're not necessarily built for people to live in. I think he was speaking specifically about warehouses and that sort of uh, office space, at least in, you know, smaller cities. But in L.A., is that is that a realistic thing that could happen? These buildings get converted into residential real estate? Well, I think the sort of trophy office buildings that you see in the skyline photos of downtown L.A., those ones would be very hard to convert. But actually, there are dozens of older buildings built in the early 1920s uh, scattered around L.A. that are now already converted to apartments, lofts, condos, and they were, before the pandemic, very attractive places to live. Downtown LA is relatively affordable and has a lot of new multifamily offerings compared to like the West Side or other parts of LA where there's, um, it's very expensive to live and it's also kind of uh, difficult to build new products. So there is a possibility that people will move into some of these buildings. The glass and steel late 20th century ones are going to have a very hard path forward, though. Hey, John, just in about, I don't know, 32 minutes, I'm going to begin my walk from Bloomberg at 58 Lex to Penn Station at 34th and let's call it 7th Avenue. So right through the heart of midtown Manhattan. And I'm going to see a lot of empty buildings, a lot of dark floors. But it's it's bad here, but it's a lot worse than other big cities like Houston and Los Angeles that your reporting brings out. So what are those cities thinking about? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the problem with cities like Houston, L.A., Atlanta, Denver, Dallas, uh, they're car centric. So people have a lot of opportunities to go outside of the city to offices, to they have big houses that they can work from. Commuting to downtown is very hard. So yeah, those cities have a problem. They're facing falling revenue. They're facing uh, retailers who are not making street life very attractive. So urban planners are really kind of trying to figure out what to do with all of this real estate Downtown could be potentially a great place to live. In L.A., for example, there's great uh, transportation downtown. It's a good place to leave, not necessarily just a good place to go into 9 to 5 during the day. So people who live downtown can get to a lot of other parts of this metro area. And jobs, for example, in the entertainment industry, you may work in Hollywood one six-month period, and then you're going out to Burbank for a job for another six-month period. So living downtown can be very central and easy to commute from. Hey, John, one of the things that I, you know, maybe the next shoe to drop in this whole commercial real estate office building real estate story is we start seeing some transactions, uh, some sales of buildings. And I think the write-down that we'll see in some of these is going to be shocking to a lot of people. Have we seen anything change hands in Los Angeles uh, to give us a sense of how far down that market's fallen? Well, yeah, in LA, the Union Bank building 
sold in March for $104 million. It last sold in 2010 for $208 million. Wow. So <laughs> there's an I example. Math there. <laughs> yeah, 50% price drop. Um, there was a motivated seller, and there was a little bit of timing if you – did the deal before March 31st. You didn't have to pay a 5.5% transfer tax. That's a new kind of disincentive to real estate investors in LA. So anyway, there, there are multiple, what should I say, uh, factors at play here. But basically, uh, you know, it's going to have to get a lot worse before it gets better for offices here in LA. Now, does this have a ripple effect on the residential space uh, in LA? that downtown is suffering? How does this emanate from that central area? Yeah, well, if the offices are vacant, uh, if people aren't on the streets, what's happened in LA is the sort of ratio between homeless and, you know, housed normal people has fallen out of whack. So there are fewer people going to offices, there are fewer commuters, and it seems like the population of people who are unhoused, uh, who are not necessarily very, uh, how to state this anyway, they can be scary. And so it's a deterrent to people, you know, there, it's a deterrent to businesses. There's, there's just a lot of factors at play. Safety is a key issue being downtown that has really come to the forefront as office vacancies yep. have risen. Yeah, it's a challenge for LA, as your reporting indicates, but lots of other cities around the country. It'll be very interesting to see how uh, this plays out over the coming years is probably how it's gonna play out. Uh, again, it's gonna be a slow melting yep. ice cube. Yeah, I think you're right, John. Uh, so that's John uh, Gittleson. He is the Bloomberg News re re real estate reporter. He's got this great story out. Check it out, Bloomberg.com. Check it out, downtown LA's office distress shows the pains coming for cities. I also wanna call out the graphics because I like pictures, they help me understand things. So the graphics here by Kyle Kim were outstanding, really blended really well into uh, this story. And it just gives you a sense of how tough things are out there in the commercial real estate business. Yeah, making real these numbers. Exactly, exactly. And what it means for the, the lenders. You know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the next wave that a lot of people are concerned about. Are we gonna start seeing banks take some big write downs on commercial real estate? So good story. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Simone Foxman, Paul Sweeney, here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Seems like for months all we've been talking about is AI, and then, of course, in the last 24 hours with uh, NVIDIA, even more to the front and center. Let's bring AI to investing. People are doing that. Our next guest is part of that whole wave, Francis O. He is the APAC CEO and head of AI ETFs, and the firm's name is Kraft Technologies with APAC. A Q. With, with a Q, Kraft with a Q. Francis, you know, we're applying AI, or at least people believe we're applying AI to just about everything we do in life. I think it feels overdone to me, but what do I know? How about for in the business of investing? Um, how can artificial intelligence help individual investors just kind of navigate the whole 
investment process. Right. Uh, first of all, thanks for um, having me here. Um, it's great to, um, to speak uh, more about how the craft technologies are applying the AI into the investment uh, practices. Um, we have been developing our AI model since 2016, uh, two different areas. One is stock selection-based AI, the other one is the asset allocation type of model. Okay, uh, so we, one is stock selection, one yes. is asset allocation. Two right. important things you've got to get right as an investor. Yes, okay. yes, yes, exactly. And uh, the technology we are using is the, something similar to ChatGPT as well. ChatGPT is the, uh, their, the, the Core AI engine is a transformer engine, and the transformer engine is a combination of attention layer. Attention is a difficult term, but attention layer itself, what it does is the trying to analyze the relationship between the input data. So when we uh, type something to ChatGPT, ChatGPT is trying to analyze the wordings or the, the sentences or paragraph to analyzing relationship, trying to get the context, what we are asking to them. So they deliver the uh, answer back to us. Uh, where we are applying the, the that attention layer uh, to our stock selection model is trying to analyze input data, price data, fundamental data, and macro data, and relationship of that to the uh, future expected return of the stock within the universe. So we've been using that for since 2019, uh, that for our stock selection model. But yesterday we launched our AIDB, AI Powered Asset Allocation ETF. So the, the ticker is AIDB for yes. the ETF. Okay. Yes. But that is the, the asset location type of ETFs. We first launched it in here. Well, congratulations on Thank the you. launch. Um, I've been looking back. They, they rang the opening bell today, the New York Stock Exchange. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. It was so honored. It's a cool experience. Yes. Um, you know, look, I'm looking back at the performance of some of the okay. uh, ETFs that you, you have out there. Uh, pretty spectacular 2020, 37.6% mm. for right. the uh, US large cap ETF. Yes. But, you know, it, what's clear is it's not always not market always beating, mm. at, at least against the S&P total right. return. When does AI perform better? When do AI-generated right. uh, investment decisions perform better yes. than the overall picture? Is there any sort of common threads right. that go into this? Okay, so the it's very um the, the question. Um, yes, uh, two thousand twenty. Uh, we rallied a lot, 2021, start to decrease a bit. Um, remember the, the, the moment of the AlphaGo, when the AlphaGo was beating the, the professional Go players. Um, it beat the human most of the time, but only the one game, it was uh, losing the game, was uh, there was unexpected. The play was happened by the uh, the professional goal player, and it could be similar to the, the our AI model as well. Something unexpected happened. Uh, for example, like uh, the very sharp the the regime um, reversion or regime changes, it could be make our AI model a little confused on the stock selection. But that could be also happening for the human portfolio manager. And the main difference is, uh, or the possible uh, distinctive advantage is the AI model at least has doesn't have ego like or the right. big portfolio <laughs> manager, it didn't attach it to the invest, previous investment decision-making to the next one. So, do, I mean, does that make moments like GameStop uh, and the, the meme crazes, right. does that make it a, a little bit easier for for you guys to capture that? Uh, yes, there no. was the moment, yes, but, but we, we our, our existing ETFs are mostly the large cap. It didn't get to have a chance for the GME or the other meme stock yet, but it could be, yes. So. To what extent, Francis, are retail investors or retail advisors, retail investors, institutional investors, to what extent are they using AI today? Is it happening? Is the typical mm. broker out there or fund manager using artificial intelligence? Um, it's start to Starting uh, boiling to. Um, in the market right now. So uh, we are having, so we are the, the B2B solution provider 
And then lucky enough to get the, the size of funding from SoftBank Group, beginning of the oh, last okay, year, good. 146 million. So we currently provide, we have our AI tip, ETF, but at the same time providing our solution to 20 different financial institutions for portfolio signals, or trading execution model, et cetera, et cetera. And right now the big agenda um, I'm keep hearing from our potential partners is the how to leveraging AI to deliver a personalized investment solution or advice back to the clients. The, like for example, like banking or the wealth managers, the, the top tier of the clients is covered by the human private bankers, but those who are under is still. Uh, and the dead areas could be probably worsened by the AI. Well, as a uh, market participant that uses a lot of the AI right. technology, mm. and we're looking at you know this massive gain in NVIDIA, uh, on the verge of maybe, I mean, maybe it's surpassed at this point, a trillion dollar company. Um, mm. How do you see some of this demand for chips, for yes. these various different components? Because you're putting together these models that use that stuff, right? Yes, we use uh, a lot of chips from the NVIDIA. <laughs> yes, we spend a lot of money. Well, is, I guess is this, is this, over, is this overplay? <laughs> yes, it's true. But at the same time, um, I believe the WhatChat GPT is really changing the game for the AI uh, in the public space or the private market is the it gives a the, the two-way um, the experiences um, and start to building up the trust of the this is the the level of the AI can deliver back to the um, the client solution services or etc etc so there will be more and more demand um, and one funny thing for the not funny thing one interesting thing for the Nvidia is the um, beginning of this May the one of our AI ETF AMOM US Alaska Momentum ETF it dumped the Apple and then pick the NVIDIA as the, the ah. top, top holdings. So <laughs> we are seeing a, a huge gain uh, today. I'm excited about it. How about for your, <laughs> just 30 seconds left, sure. the, the demand for your ETFs. What are you seeing out there? Who's, who's interested in your ETFs? Yes, uh, mostly from the who have uh, the savvy understanding of the tech background okay. or the who wants to fearlessly that want to experience the, the new adoption of the AI could be helpful. What I want to uh, envision in the five to 10 years later is the, if we, uh, one of our goal is trying to deliver a sustainable alpha generative solution by the AI. And if that is happening, I believe there will be a moment that AI powered investment solution become a new beta, new beta in the market. Great stuff, exciting stuff. Francis O, I'm glad there's somebody doing this stuff. Francis O, <laughs> APAC CEO and head of AI ETFs. Man, technology changes everything. Craft Technologies APAC, that's the name of the firm. Uh, they've got some ETFs out there really using to integrate uh, artificial intelligence into the investment process and why not using AI for just about everything else in life. So we've learned just maybe in the last six months, it seems to have been front and center. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.